you have a bully inside your head telling you that you're not good enough? Do you lean towards self-defeat? Do you have trouble believing in yourself? And are you dying to learn how to become the perfect version of you? A you that you dream about? If you answered yes, then you're like me, and this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Journey to Worthy podcast, where we discuss self-esteem, worthiness, and transformation through a gay lens. I'm your host, Jeremy Long, and I want to share my journey with you. Welcome to the Journey to Worthy. All right, welcome to another episode of Journey to Worthy podcast. I am sitting here with my good friend, Michael. Say hello, Michael. Hello. And you all remember Michael from the season finale of, of season one. And so now we're going to flip the script again. And you interviewed me. That's right. And now we're flipping it to you because I want the audience to get to know who is Michael. Who is Michael? So we didn't really talk a little a lot about you. It was that was a, an episode mostly about me. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about who you are? Well, that's a very good question. I think that is a question that I ask myself often, mm. daily, probably weekly. I guess my answer to that is that I'm still trying to figure that out. And as you get older, it gets easier, especially with sobriety. Uh, yeah. I would say getting mm-hmm. to know yourself more. Well, it's pretty reflective, isn't it? We have to be. Yeah. It's part of the process, really. Absolutely. You have a clearer vision. Mm-hmm. You see things through mm-hmm. and you're not caught up in, I guess, the cycles and the dramas <laughs> that kind of impair your views of yourself, mm-hmm. your views of the world and your views of others and your views of how you feel others view you and so on and so on. (laughs) The layers. Many layers. Right. Yeah. Uh, I grew up. Well, that's funny because I I don't know where I really grew up or if I have grown up, but (laughs) I I was born in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. That's uh, Northern Ontario. Right. Yeah. And my parents split up at a very young age. And so I moved around a lot. I spent some time in Sudbury, Garson, Ontario, a small town outside of Sudbury, mm-hmm. Mississauga, Ottawa, Meadowville, Milton, Toronto, and here I am now. So we moved around a lot and we didn't stay in one spot very long. And uh, it's funny because as I look back now, I really feel that I've learned to adapt and improvise Mm -hmm. because of those experiences. I had to, Mm -hmm. it was survival, right? Yeah. You had to build relationships and adapt really quickly. Right. Yeah. And when I was a child, I didn't really have much choice of what was going on. So that certainly impacts, I think who I've become today. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. And what, uh, sort of what's been your career path so far? Wow. Well, for the last 10 years, I've been working in public relations and communications. I've been doing freelance work, and I've worked with many different small businesses, large brands, artists, Mm -hmm. uh, personalities, predominantly working with the media, getting press coverage. So working with TV producers, reporters, anchors, Mm -hmm. editors, or writers for print and online media, and radio. So I help facilitate editorial uh, stories, news stories. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that for 
10 years now, industry is changing. Digital media, print's kind of gone under. A lot of media job cuts. Not a lot of space, not a lot of editorial opportunities anymore. Right. So that has been challenging and, you know, kind of getting to the point too where, where I'm questioning how I can advance this career. What other skill sets uh, or services that I can start introducing or even whether I consider a second career. Right. So that has played out as well with figuring out. And, you know, you asked the question, who is Michael? Well, as I get to know Michael more and more since sobriety, uh, that is a question that has, you know, been weighing on my mind. I try to approach it with compassion instead of beating myself up. Mm -hmm. I'm turning 35 on October, so find myself sometimes defaulting to a lot of social comparison where I should be, what I should have, especially when you start comparing yourself with, with your peers, but with practices of, of compassion and, you know, self-love, I'm learning to navigate through those questions in a kinder and gentler way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where before some of the motivators to change and to improve have really been driven by emotions like guilt and shame that I think are really prevalent in our society. And certainly that is something that has been motivators for me throughout my childhood, uh, teenage years, and early adulthood. And it's something that I'm tackling now. And it's very interesting how those things play into how you view yourself, both in the professional world and also your personal and romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. So what do you love about where you are in your job though? Like what do you love about PR? I love a challenge. I love being able to take a message, take a brand, mm. find relevance and contact the media to persuade them to do the story. I love being part of creating a story and framing a story it is extremely competitive now to get editorial coverage. There is a lot happening out there. Right. And we are losing local voices. We're losing local media. Uh, a lot of things are syndicated now. A lot of our media coverage has been dominated by celebrities like the Kardashians or what's happening with, you know, on Trump's Twitter feed. Gosh. So it's, it's extremely challenging to get other messages through mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And I forgot the question. What do you love about it? I think what I love about it is there's something exciting about being responsible for creating a story and reaching an audience, whether Mm -hmm. the audience is, is listeners like this podcast, right. uh, Or in print digital or TV. And one of the things I really like doing is being challenged with learning to write and pitch story ideas that can be seen on TV and told in a way that how you would hear it on TV versus how you would hear it on radio Mm. versus how you would read it. Throughout the 10 years of my PR career, I've learned one thing in that when you're going to contact a producer or an editor or a writer... Whatever you say 
to attract them and you have seven seconds really to make an impression, it better sound like a story right off the bat. Mm -hmm. So when you're pitching to TV, you want it to sound like it would be a TV story. Right. Or if you were to pick up a daily newspaper or a magazine, you want it to already read like it is a story that makes their job easier as well. Cause they're on tight deadlines. And if you provide them a new story and they're like, wow, Michael's done everything for us. We don't really need to do anything. Yeah. We could just file the story really quickly. Yeah. I've made their job easier and that gives me fulfillment because I participated in creating content with them and also telling my client's story. So really being between those two parties, mm-hmm. there's a magic to it. There's an art to it. And I feel excited about, you know, being a part of that. And it's almost as if you're a broker, so to speak, between a talent or a story or a message and how it gets spread. You could say that. Yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've heard a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you do. What about what what you love like what what lights you up what what lights you up in your day well i have to say lately it's travel mm-hmm. travel has been a huge part of having something to look forward to right uh, having something to work towards right i just traveled four weeks in europe and i was in my element traveling mm. it was my first trip traveling sober. Uh, so that was quite interesting. Right. And you remember your old self in party leisure environments that travel often is. Right. And I found myself asking, Oh, I remember what would old Michael do in this situation? (laughs) But one thing that this recent trip in particular has done for me is made me realize that I can enjoy life without substances, Mm -hmm. without alcohol or drugs. And it's kind of given me a sense of hope in terms of restructuring and creating new events, new experiences that I can look forward to. Right. I consider myself still very much early in my recovery. I'm about two and a half years drugs and alcohol free. What I'm faced with now is filling in, changing my reward system, if you will. Okay, yeah, for sure. And filling in those leisure times with other things. And I partied for 20 years every weekend. There was periods where I was using something every day. And all my time and space really was chasing the high, getting intoxicated or recovering from that. And that takes up a lot of time in your life. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah, it is. And now it's about, well, I got the sobriety thing down. I I don't feel, I feel confident. I don't have any urges for the, the substance itself. But now it's mostly lifestyle. And you've asked the question, what lights you up? Well, sometimes that's difficult for me to answer. And throughout sobriety, one thing that I've learned about myself is 
it gets easier, but the depression and the anxiety is still there. Mm -hmm. And it's proven to me that there is an underlining depression and anxiety that exists, okay. which makes sense to me why I had used all those years. So now that I've removed drugs and alcohol, life is more sustainable, but you become so aware mm -hmm. of the ways mm -hmm. and, and the behaviors and the patterns and the cycles that we go through and you start really seeing yourself. I totally understand. Yeah. yeah. And this all connects to your first question. Who is Michael? You're still figuring that out. I'm still, I'm still figuring that out. Well, and it's, it's new, like two and a half years. Isn't that long in comparison to maybe how long you were partying? And yes. so you're still defining who that person is. That identity has changed and you continue to redefine it. Absolutely. I think one word that comes to mind sometimes is rebirth. Right. And I feel alive. And as I approach my 35th birth birthday, I will say that I'm so grateful to, to be alive. I think I might've had an unrealistic expectation that when I got sober, everything was going to be hunky dory <laughs> and that there was roses. roses. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean to sound like coming from a half full perspective, but you know, I think it was Buddha that said, Life is chaotic. There's always suffering. There's always suffering, yeah. There's only moments of happiness. Now, I don't... That sounds kind of, you know, like a downer. Right. And as I'm learning more and reading more, and there's a whole industry based on self-help and, and achieve happiness and success. And even though they do have merit, I do wonder... If we as individuals and a society as a whole are in constant suffering because we are clinging on to this desperate obsession to maintain a level of positivity and happiness. Hmm. Like something's wrong with you if you're not happy. Yeah. Right. Like something is wrong because I'm not high. And I think that's what potentially years of you know substance use is done is my whole inner chemistry i'm so wired to reach a high yeah and unless a plateau, a plateau yeah climax and unless i'm there if something falls short of that it's like all of a sudden the body goes question in, it i'm like i gotta do something yeah something's wrong i need to add something to this to make myself better yeah whether that's now that it's not drugs and alcohol it's something else coffee Coffee. A social media post. Food, attention, sex. Yes, know, those things. Forward movement. It's like hard to be satisfied with just what we have right in front of us, which is an act of mindfulness, which is difficult for people like you and I sometimes. Absolutely. Because we're always chasing. Right. Yeah. Do you want to give a little context as to, like, you, you just said where you were and where you are, but what about the process of how you got to where you are? Like, how? what made you want to change? What made you want to get sober? Like, what was the moment for you? Yeah, we could talk about that. You don't have to go into great depth or anything, but what was the feeling that people may identify with? It's interesting. I've had many rock bottom moments, mm -hmm. but I kept on pushing and pushing and going back and trying. For whatever reason, it was so important for me 
to keep on trying to maintain some type of party lifestyle. But time and time again, the lows always outweighed the highs. Mm -hmm. And it was getting to the point where I was turning 32 or 33 and I had a a weekend bender, if -hmm. you will. And, you know, it got very close to, to certain things and certain behaviors that I realized weren't really aligned with what I truly wanted. Mm-hmm. I realized for most of it, I just wanted love and attention and company. And I think I've used partying and substances in order to get to that. I think there was many times where I just thought that if I didn't stop, it was just going to be a matter of time that I died. And whether that was ODing or whether that was being in a depressive state and taking my own life, I decided that I wanted to live and that I needed to do this now. It got to the point where it was either now or never. Mm -hmm. And and I remember it clearly, and I'm not prepared to get into all the details Mm -hmm. now in this podcast about everything, but I will say I made a call. I made a call through Vancouver Coastal Health. I had a, an initial intake uh, session over the phone. Mm-hmm. And I went for my first meeting. And I have to tell you, I was so excited just to have someone to talk with mm-hmm. about this. Because you hadn't had that? Not really. Do you feel like that's because when you're kind of wrapped up in drinking that... You surround yourself with people that you don't really talk about what's really going on. I think that I've exhausted those resources in many ways with family Uh, and friends. I feel like, well, there's Michael broken record. uh, Here are the answers, Michael. We know what the answers are and you keep on going through the cycle. So I think there was a lot of that. And then also I will say that you, for me anyways, I didn't want to burden my friends and family. I, I didn't want them to know that I was suffering, even though they knew it was important for me to, to try to demonstrate to them that I was doing well. And in many ways, I kind of felt that if I did tell them, mm-hmm. or at least tried to focus on the positives, that that somehow would manifest and, and uh, improve and elevate my mood. But the reality was, was that something needed to change. I knew that this was going to take a lot of work. And having someone to speak with that wasn't a family member or a friend was refreshing. Mm-hmm. It was fresh ears and they're a profe- they're professional and substance use and men- is a mental health issue. And yeah, you know, it's a solution to a mental health issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't entirely sure what my goals were going in. But I was really excited about free counseling. Mm-hmm. But the more I went in and throughout the conversations and through mood tracking, they track your moods and ask you questions and they actually have a graph. I want to show you what you've told them over the few weeks. Like you were at a three, now you're at a five. Or exactly. Whatever. And they were able, well, we were working together and we were able to demonstrate that I was consistently improving Mm -hmm. with my mood. 
And you don't see that all the time, but when someone else points it out to you, which is what's so great about a counselor or a coach, because they can actually show you like, oh, well, you're not always stagnant in the same position. Like you're actually fluctuating between up and down. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it really puts things in perspective because let's say I had a day where I was feeling really depressed. Well, that takes over. And I obsess about it. Why am I this way? Mm -hmm. Why am I still feeling this way? I'm doing all the right things. And when they look back and put things in perspective, they're like, well, wait a second, Michael. Let's not jump off, you know, the rail here. Yeah. The last two weeks, if you look at your scale, has been really good. Right. These are the things that we identified that are working for you. So you had a little slip. Right. In terms of your mood. Yeah. Or a little low. Let's not automatically be catastrophic about it. Don't just write it all off. It's not working. Yes, exa yeah. exactly. Which and is over sensationalizing your moment, you know. And and I've always done that. Yeah. Um, and and so that's really helped me put things in per in perspective. And so that's what I did. I never went to AA. I'm not sure why I didn't go to AA, but I felt that the one-on-one -on -one counseling in addition to this mental health support group I went to for depression and anxiety, uh, the combination of both of those uh, were good and, and a lot of free will. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. The, you kind of grieve your old self throughout the process. Mm -hmm. And I went through a, a bunch of different, different emotions through throughout the first year and a half. And, you know, I decided to, to go to AA a couple of reasons. Well, I wanted to expand my social network. Mm -hmm. That's how you and I met. Exactly. And I do see value in the steps, which I haven't done yet. And I recently finished a 28 week program at Vancouver general hospital for DBT, that's dialectical behavior therapy. I was on a waiting list for more than a year. And that's been very helpful. That provided me in-class work and also one-on-one -on -one counseling. And the things I've learned have been incredible through DBT, mindfulness, emotional regulation, distress tolerance, and effective communication. I talked to my family today and it's interesting. It's kind of like a paradox, <laughs> even with my friends. They're like, you know, you're the same person, but you're not the same person. Yeah. And this is the Michael that we all love. And this is the Michael that we wanted to see shine through. And what's it like having that affirmation? Really good. Hearing it from your mom, your grandmother, my relationship with my brothers improved. He's one of my best friends. When I went back, when I went to visit Europe, I was so happy that people came out, my old friends who I partied with, came to see me when they knew I was sober. That felt so good because to me, that demonstrated to me that they valued me, me for being me. And it didn't matter to them whether or not I was drinking or using with mm -hmm. them. And I had people turn to me and say, you're still Michael. Yeah. You don't need those things. That felt 
very validating because for me, the biggest challenge throughout my sobriety and maintaining the sobriety hasn't been fiending and wanting a drink or to use, even though those moments were there, it was more of fearing losing my identity, losing a community that I felt that I had built and using, losing the sense of belonging. Yeah. Feeling othered. Exactly. Yeah. So I realized throughout this that I've had more gains than losses. That's amazing. So it feels good. And in turn, my career has really taken off. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm debt free and it feels good to be approaching, achieving things that I've always wanted. But unfortunately in the past recovering and in just being in that cycle of, of using and seeking validation and that took too much of a toll and it just made anxiety and depression work. And so therefore, I mean, that impacts your self-esteem and confidence. So I would avoid work. I would avoid opportunity because in many ways, I think I was too scared to lose at a big level. I was worried that I was going to mess up. Embarrass yourself or something. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But now I am more confident, good self-esteem and I can get out of bed and do the work. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not only about, you know, being an alcoholic or an addict and then needing to be completely sober because that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about just, you know, for me, it's about, I need to once in a while, just look at myself and I think, am I who I want to be? Am I where I want to be? Am I going in the direction I want to be going? Because I think a lot of people that might be listening might also be thinking, well, that's, you know, I can't relate to the whole sobriety thing, but it's not about that. It's about, is there some change in your life that you feel like you need to make based on, you know, are you happy with the choices you've made? Is there something you're missing? You know, is there, is there something that you don't like about where you've ended up currently that maybe you can shift? Maybe you can make a small shift and uh, make new choices and surround yourself with just a different different set of people or experiences to further yourself into the direction that you always wanted to go. Absolutely. It wasn't until I removed the substances until I was really able to, to make these changes. Or have this awareness. Or have this awareness. Yeah, that's for me at least. That's how I feel. I didn't even know where I wanted to go until I started removing some of these things. Right. Yeah. I had a moment recently where I realized I looked at my life right now and it's kind of, I've always felt like I didn't know exactly what the next step was going to be. And I just realized, you know, I like who I'm becoming. I'm becoming who I always wanted to be, who I didn't think I was capable of being. And I actually feel like for the first time, maybe not for the first time, but strongly over the last few times, this is like, oh yeah, I really like the direction life's going. And that's such a refreshing feeling. And that partially to sobriety, but partially just to being aware. And maybe that comes with sobriety or, you know, reflecting. And some people are afraid to reflect, I think. I think many people are afraid to reflect. I think in many ways, I feel like that's a lot why a lot of people 
use. Mm -hmm. I feel like they are afraid of being in a moment, stillness, and looking at themselves. I think that's very scary for some people. It takes courage. It really does. There's a lot of people who indulge head, dive head first into work. Mm -hmm. It's work, work, work. It's party, party, party. Yeah. It's recovery. There's not a lot of moments of opportunity to really connect with your true being and your breath. And I think that scares people. And I think that's why a lot of people fill their lives with all this distraction. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that I've learned is that mindfulness isn't pleasant necessarily. (laughs) Mindfulness can be extremely uncomfortable. And that's important to remember that it's a part of it. Mindfulness isn't always pleasant. Right. It can be extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) Can be. Mm -hmm. Do you think that ties into what, what sort of struggles are maybe the gay community or gay men are facing now is being, being mindful, you know, facing themselves like at a deeper level. You know, like maybe that's what sort of like being sober, being gay and sober is for you. Like now it's like you're, you're digging deep. It's very interesting because I came out at the age of 14 Mm -hmm. and that was in 2000 and sorry, that was 1998. (laughs) Uh 1998, I think. Yeah. Sounds about right. And I, I was very depressed and very anxious most of my childhood up until that point. And I think when I came out at the time, I just didn't feel like I had many options but to go downtown, go to raves. Yeah. I think like most people during their teenage years, they're trying to seek identity and be liked. And community. And community. Yeah. And being out as a gay man in 1998, people weren't very pleasant to me. I was bullied. Mm-hmm. I was abused, harassed, and it made going to school very difficult. And this definitely impacted how I viewed myself, mm-hmm. how I viewed the world, how I viewed authority. Oh, yeah. And now I run, you know. And when I started going to parties, raves, and just letting loose and being loved, or at least I felt loved. Right. I spent all my time and energy in that scene Mm -hmm. because I lost respect and hope in many ways from my family, from my teachers or the school institution. Yeah. My peers at school. All of a sudden you feel like you're being looked at differently, right? Yeah. And that sort of ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, well, no one likes what I'm becoming, so I may as well just let myself do whatever and run away, so so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That, That was exactly it. And so one of the hardest things about, I guess, getting sober and this path to well-being and spirituality and mindfulness, it's kind of like... Well, I'm letting go everything that I cre- I've created. I've created this identity. Yeah. I've created this super ego, if you will. 
it's difficult to kind of find reconciliation mm. with your old self. I don't really regret. Sometimes I wonder how much further I could be in my life in terms professionally, maybe romantically, had I made other decisions. But I really do believe that everything had to happen to bring me to where I am today. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of forgiveness and compassion involved with that throughout recovery. And it's an on, it's an ongoing process. Um, I do believe that being young, that young coming out and being gay, I mean, statistics already show that the LGBT community are more prone to, they have higher suicide rates, higher substance use rates across all borders across the world. Yeah. That says something, right? I didn't have, we didn't really have the resources or the support that was visible for people Mm -hmm. like me back then. So my options were, were very slim in terms of fulfilling that, that need for a social connection. So now it's interesting because I am making new connections and new positive connections. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge is, is like I said, is still trying to find reconciliation for the past. I still love house music. I still like to go out dancing. I love house music. I love it. Give me some deep house and I cannot stop moving. And you know, I went to Berlin during my trip to Europe and that was my, I took myself, I went to Berlin alone I stayed in a hostel. It was my first time staying in a hostel. I met so many great people. And I went out and partied in Berlin to 6.30 in the morning. And it was wild. I went to this place called Kit Kat. And it was a big gay sex club. You checked your clothes. Everyone was topless oh my god what was that like oh my gosh i was topless too because i realized if you have a shirt it's awkward (laughs) (laughs) only in a gay bar is it weird to wear clothes (laughs) i felt very vulnerable everyone at this party and i was convinced everyone in berlin was so hot everyone was ripped Mm. ripped or beautiful. I've never seen so many beautiful people (laughs) in my life. So I consider my body average. I'm beginning to like my body. As you know, in the gay world, sometimes it can be superficial. Yeah. Body self image is just such an ongoing struggle for all of us. I think in, well, not just the gay world, but everywhere. That's an entire topic. That's a that, total that, another episode for us in the future. Yeah, that is an entire topic. Yeah, uh, I will say I was I was vulnerable, but I I did it, and I danced, and I went swimming. This club had a pool. I went wow. skinny dipping, which was very free, freeing. It was challenging in the sense that, of course, people were indulging. Yeah, drugs, alcohol sucks it's berlin it's berlin (laughs) i was so curious 
fascinated, excited, but frightened at the same time. It is very overwhelming. You know, going down and, and seeing what I saw, there was a lot of mixed emotions going on there. It's different when you're not under the influence because I was at Folsom in San Francisco two years ago and I was sober and that kind of sexual energy is so impactful. And when you are kind of under the influence, like a little bit drunk, it's just, I think it's easier to receive that or to navigate through it without feeling so overwhelmed but sober, it's like you notice everything and every like person that maybe brushes up against you or touches you or like looks at you. And there's that sexual aggressiveness, like which is quite exciting and quite hot, depending on who it's coming from, but also can be so, whoa, like this is too much, too fast. Like I was in a club, walked through and all these people just literally touched me and like, no permission, like consent becomes like a flexible, fluid thing. And then all of a sudden, I actually decided to remove myself because again, being sober, I often show up to things late, leave early because it's just like I have a capacity for uh, this is enough. And then I take myself to somewhere where, you know, to do something good for myself. Like I went to a meeting nice. you know, and I needed that. And I, and I felt great about that choice. But I get what you're saying like that. Over, it's overwhelming. That sexual gay energy can be like, whoa, like super hot. And I'm so into it, but I need a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying not to moralize it, but I'm wondering, I don't know if there was, I didn't really feel like there was room for love in what was happening. Hmm. I, I'm not sure. I, things could, things were aggressive. It's a bit more hedonistic. It is hedonistic. And which is to each their own. Yeah, exactly. But I found myself asking, who are these people day to day? Huh? How are they sitting down with their families? If that happens? Yeah. What do they do for a living? I guess it was a moment that I had where I realized that this is not what I want. Maybe just not anymore. Maybe not anymore. Yeah, because I feel like we both through we probably both had moments in our life where we've been, shall I say the word promiscuous mm -hmm. or sexualized. You can. I said it. <laughs> you know, and like there was a period where when I yeah when I attended Folsom like that's that's where I was in my life. I was having fun. I was meeting a lot of new people and having wonderful experiences with multiple men. And perhaps that's where I was then. And then, but it also shifted into like right now, that's not where I am. I'm, you know, now I'm dating someone obviously. So it's changed, but I, even before getting into this, you know, relationship, I have stepped back from that sexualized culture because I've shifted gears into something different, which is what you, I think, have done as well. It's sort of like you, we've talked about the self-improvement and the reflection, which sometimes, again, sex can be like a substance almost, right? Like it's, and what you said about substances is like you needed to remove them to see who you are. And maybe sex is part of that as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, getting to know myself identifying my values, mm -hmm. reassessing where I want to invest my time yeah. and my energy. Yeah. Again, being 
in these environments, but now sober, it's like you're experiencing experiencing them for the first time all over again. Oh yeah. And rebirth. It is a it is a rebirth. Mm-hmm. And I will say it's definitely challenged my thoughts and I and I accepted that challenge. Um and on the flip side too, I do I'm starting to I guess liberalize. Is that I don't know if I want to use that word, but um be a little bit more open to this idea of sex positivity. Yeah. And that's something I'm willing to explore more in, in thought and in, in discourse. And, uh, again, I think it kind of ties back to some emotions like shame and guilt Mm -hmm. and around sex in general. Exactly. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I certainly romanticized many past experiences, many encounters that I've had under Under the influence. influence, And certainly being in this environment was uh, a trigger for me. And it was definitely, it's an experience and I'm really glad I had it. And I had a great time in Berlin and I had a great time traveling. It certainly brings up a lot of vulnerabilities, especially when you travel alone for your first time. And especially when you're sober, because you don't have, you're not participating. I'm not connecting with people by using drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. It is extremely different. I was in line to get into Bergane, the the big techno club that everyone waits three hours to get into. And you may not get in. (laughs) You wait and they say yes or no. Wow. It's very, yeah. Well, you know what? I didn't get in. And I waited two and a half to three hours. Wow. I knew I wasn't potentially going to get in, but I accepted that that was part of the experience being in line. Wow. And I met someone from New York and we chatted. People were walking up and down the line offering drugs. Yo, guy, you want some stuff? I thought it was hilarious how they were soliciting. And I said, no, I, I'm, I don't do drugs. I'm, I'm sober. He's like, what do you mean you don't do drugs? You come here, you do drugs. And oh, that's he, such a weird expectation. Berlin. Somebody who I talked to actually had a theory. Ever since the wall has come down and all of Eastern Berlin came, mm-hmm. everyone's like, the teenager has no more curfew. They are out and they are going to party and they're going to have a good time and no one's going to tell them what to do. Mm. And there is a sense of that. Berlin parties. People don't go out until after midnight and they come home at like six, nine in the morning. I was operating on four hours of sleep each night just because of the commotion of being in the hostel. Yeah. I felt a little woo. <laughs> I mean, but I love Berlin. I cycled in Berlin. I went to a park, uh, flea market that was pop, pop up artists, uh, performers. I love the art and culture, but I will say it is very hardcore and it is a, it's definitely a party city. Yeah. And I'm sure there is a sober community there. Uh, I'm positive there, there has to be. I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't go to a group there. Uh, I was genuinely having a really good time with the people that I met and, uh, you know, they didn't care I wasn't using. In fact, yeah. they respected it and they found it very fascinating. Um, and I had a really good time. I think I just got contact high. Yeah. 
from the from the crowd. Yeah. And and that felt good. And having these experiences and allowing myself to have these experiences kind of reassured, reaffirmed, however you want to say it, that I can go out and have a really good time and I don't need those things in my life that were, you know, setting me back. And the personal experience and just the growth uh, that I've had throughout traveling and reintroducing old experiences, but now sober, Mm -hmm. has been really empowering. I think what was really cool about your trip was that, or maybe the message for people is that, yeah, you can do all these things. You can have all this fun sober. And you can try things. There's no rules to sobriety. I think some people get caught up in like, oh, if I if I get sober, I'm going to have to let go of all these things. And what you've just proven is that, well, you can still dabble or explore and that there's no rules. There's no one telling you this is what your life has to be if you're going to commit to a full on sobriety. And maybe you aren't. But what you did was you you took action around this like you you made safety nets like you reached out to me while you were away or I did and you you kind of ratted yourself out like hey this is what's going on I think I'm good but I'm just telling you what's up yeah and that's that's important I think when it comes to changing your routine changing your environment so drastically and and yeah putting yourself in a place where it could potentially be a trigger is like you connect to people that you need to Right. And you and I chatted a few times while you were away and we sent voice messages over WhatsApp, which is way more personal than just a I'm glad you're okay over a text. Yeah. Right. And so I think what you made important was your connection. And even if it was just me just a little bit, it was a connection. It was a commitment to your, you know, your sober peeps here in Vancouver. And Jeremy, thank you for that, because. Yeah, there was many times where I was feeling vulnerable. Yeah. Um, we live in a very alcohol and drug eccentric world. Yeah. Especially gay culture. Yeah. And when I'm around these environments, the mind kind of wanders and you start negotiating. Yep. And yeah. <laughs> you know, and there was a couple of moments there. And, you know, I caught myself and I reached out to you. Yeah. And that was really that was really good again with the guilt and shame i felt guilty and ashamed for even thinking right. or even having the thought and then reaching out to you was oh what's how's jeremy what's jeremy gonna think of me now you know right. and that's not what you got from me at all obviously not not at all right. um in fact like it's just it, it was the connection that i needed to have that i just i just didn't have a lot of that there Mm -hmm. i had support but not at not at this level and you're so immersed it becomes sort of like a tunnel vision thing like you forget like even just like on the outside what your life is because you're so right here right now exactly yeah yeah exactly i'm super happy and super you know proud of myself for being able to get through all those vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. without and being okay with being vulnerable. Yeah. You know, I hosted, I emceed my, my buddy's wedding. I got on that mic, something that I probably would get shit-faced before doing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it, and it felt great. And, you know, I guess to bring it all back to who is Michael, you know, what yeah, lifts you up what's during the, the day. What's the takeaway from all of that, yeah. 
You learn more and more about yourself as time goes by through experiences. And now that I am sober, I can, I'm really in touch with my emotions and how I truly feel mm. about the experience. And I could think about it in a way that that's not influenced by other things and evaluate and also remember. I think throughout past experiences, I've had so many experiences I wanted to forget that I might have avoided thinking about them through, you know, recovering. But now throughout experiences, new experiences, having the same experience again, but as this new self and this new being, it's allowed me to reflect and to learn and to remember in order for myself to reapproach those events and experiences again with that previous experience. So I'm ready for it again. If that makes sense. <laughs> I don't even know. We both just gave each other like this puzzled face. <laughs> okay. So wrapping up here, what, uh, what are some of the things that you've done that you could suggest people could give a try when it comes to like maybe a, a daily practice or, you know, any kind of self-reflection technique that you've really felt has helped you come this far. It's not all about sobriety, obviously. Yeah. I think one of the things that I have learned that I keep on trying to tell myself is that rest is productive. Ah, we are so obsessed with doing. We, often get caught up in instant gratification and reward and what is my return. But we burn out. We often forget that there is a whole being. We are, there's a whole body and chemistry that's happening within ourselves. Mm -hmm that I think it's really important to take a moment to breathe and to be aware that there is something greater going on that is beyond your work. Right. That is beyond your busyness, busyness. And for many people, busyness, people are addicted to busyness. Well, and it's not like your success is marked on how busy you are. It's just because you have a million calls and emails and you're working 60 hours a week doesn't mean you're actually successful or happy for that matter. Absolutely not. And that, that is something I noticed with you. When we chat, you've often just done something for yourself. Like you've taken time for yourself. Like there's a lot of these people that I follow actually, or even just like very successful entrepreneurs or business owners or CEOs that... Uh, they talk about that, that notion of high rest, where it's like it's you schedule the time for rest. Like Bill Gates does every year. He does two weeks of 
I don't know where he goes, but certain like trips where he he's cut off from technology and it's just about reading and doing things for himself, you know, and other like major executive CEOs, like they, they schedule this high rest. And that's something that you do very well. I think you schedule in periods of rest where you get to downtime, which is like what creative people talk about as the most critical time for your brain to come up with new ideas. You have to stop thinking about everything and obsessing on the next thing so you can actually have a moment to create something new. Exactly. And a couple of other things that I found useful for me is coping statements, writing coping statements. Every time I default back to an unpleasant or let's say counterproductive or ineffective thought I will have a coping statement to kind of having a coping statement to challenge that notion, to challenge that thought. Yeah. Let's say I wake up and I'm feeling worthless. Well, Michael, you're not worthless. Let's examine the evidence. Let's examine the evidence. Let's check the facts. It's interesting. Things that I've learned is thoughts. You don't have to believe your thoughts. They're fake news. It's fake news. <laughs> it is. It is. Thoughts are fake news. Thoughts are fake news. Hashtag that. I know. <laughs> uh, coping statements. I also have a, sometimes when I'm, I am working, I do have a distraction document. So if a thought comes into my mind, mm-hmm. I write it down so I can do it later. I love that. I get, I, I hate to admit it, but like I get, so easily distracted. I feel like that's it's a creative mind and I want to jump on it. Oh, I saw this. This oh I gotta take a picture for Jeremy or this is a news article. So I'll stop everything I'm doing. Yeah. Which interrupts my own work. Which again at the end I'll feel guilty and ashamed about because I'm not hanging on track. Right. Keep on on track. And then I'll be like, oh gotta send Jeremy this because I'm jumping on the mood. Because right. I'm clinging on to the high and the excitement. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I think I think it's that's fine. And you know, kind of beat ourselves up for being distracted. Or, it's like meditation. Yeah, like you have to acknowledge the thought and then let it go. Absolutely. Right. There was one more thing that I wanted to add for this podcast about certain things. Um, let's, what was the roundup we talked Practices about? Practices of things uh, you pr- uh, rest is productive. Yeah. Coping statements, having a distraction uh, list. Mm -hmm. I found a routine in a sleep, like regular sleep, really helpful for me. I think sleep is the number one thing for mood regulation. And I think mood regulation is probably one of the most important things that most people or us as society doesn't really talk about a lot. I think a lot of behaviors are motivated by our moods and I think we need to be more mindful and it's only until you create space and room and giving yourself permission to connect with yourself that you are able to ride these waves without necessarily reacting Mm. to them or making decisions based on Uh, these moods, which will manifest and directly impact your life. And I think mindfulness really helps. That's like creating a draft and giving some thought before you send that email. 
or mm-hmm. responding to a text or asking yourself questions. Is this response helpful? Right. Or even a response to your own mind frame. Like we circling back to what you said earlier, like you might think that you are, everything's going to shit because you're, you know, you think you're a three today, but you're the person that you're talking to reminds you like, Oh, you're actually been doing pretty good lately. Right. Like exactly keep, keeping someone else involved and admitting and admitting stuff about your mental health. That's, I think that you just hit it like an important point is that people don't talk about mental health enough. You, we do yeah. have an expectation to be on, to be doing well, yeah. showing our best foot forward, putting our best foot forward, you know. Well, anxiety and depression, they lie to you. Yeah. My anxiety. Things are actually okay. Yeah. This is, and I have to remind myself, you know, this is part of the diagnosis. This is what depression is. This is what someone with an anxiety disorder is Mm. or whatever diagnosis. This is why it's a mental illness to speak to those who might be um, suffering or navigating through their their own mental health and wellness. It's like sometimes it's not a matter of I deserve this or I did this to myself or something, something in my circumstances brought me here. There's just an inner narrative that you can be mindful of and compassionate about. And one thing that I try to remember is that I'm parenting myself now and there's this inner child mm-hmm. and I'm responsible for nurturing my inner child. And my inner child has all these core beliefs and sometimes they come up and it's me. I have to be strong for that inner child and help guide that person. Yeah. And when I, when I remember that, that certainly helps me and and hopefully it will help you and, and your listeners. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. Yeah. Great, great chat today. And, and I mean, I'm sure that we're going to have lots more uh, to talk about as we maybe checking in once a month and having a little on the, on the air sort of uh, collective gathering. Of I would absolutely love that. Yeah. This has been kind of therapeutic mm-hmm. to, uh, to be able to, to talk about this mm-hmm. openly. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people do. Well, this is part of what, what is, what does it mean to be gay today? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Journey to Worthy Podcast.